Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. You know, it's kind of unique being in a Pentecostal church and being a Pentecostal preacher because uh, we, don't f- we don't have a book that we follow when... I interned in that Lutheran church. They, they gave me their Lutheran handbook and it had all the messages for, the, for every week and you followed it and hopefully you got one mailed to you the following year so you didn't preach the same message that you preached the year previous. But inside, in, in, in Pentecost or in the kingdom of God, sometimes as preachers we get, we, like, we really like some of the good stuff and we like to preach uh, things that are exciting but and I'm that way. I don't know if anybody else is that way. If I could pick my sermons, they'd all, they'd all be flowery and, and full of hopefully power and presence. But then sometimes God says, you know what, I, I, I want you to change your preaching and I want you to go to a book that you don't really re- like to read. I have to confess to you that uh, reading the Bible through, there are some books when I'm going through the process that I just sort of, oh, we're going to... We're going to Jeremiah. How many chapters are in Jeremiah? Oh, God, this is so depressing, Lord. And, and sometimes, I'm just being honest with you because I think many of you are, will have the same thing that I have. Sometimes my eyes are reading just because I want to get through it. I just, it's, it's sort of like... Um, Walking through the wilderness, I'm going to go through because I have a destination on the other side. And I'm not really comprehending what I'm reading. I'm just reading it because it's in the path that I have to to walk on. But the Lord spoke to me a while ago and said, you know, I want you to talk on um, this topic. And uh, it's a burden which does not die. And if you're familiar with Jeremiah, you'll, you'll reflect on this saying. You've probably heard it in your Bible studies. Jeremiah is referred to as what kind of a prophet? Weeping. Not a sleeping, but a weeping prophet. Because most of the book is very heavy. But we need to understand that when a person receives a burden... It changes their whole perspective of life. Now, if you've never had a burden come on you for something, you won't relate to what I'm about to say. A true burden that comes from God will oftentimes cause you to push away from the table. It will keep you up at night. It will cause you to think over a situation over and over again because God has put something on your heart, a mission to fulfill and it will not be removed until it's completed. Well, Jeremiah received a burden. You ever wonder why they call him the weeping prophet? Let's go back and look at Jeremiah 9 and 1. And I, I bet you this is the verse that they, they used to get that, that terminology. As I'm speaking tonight, I want want you to somehow feel the heart of Jeremiah. He says these words, Jeremiah 9 and 1. Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. That is a man with a burden. In Jeremiah, the 20th chapter, verse 9, and I I use this version so it'll be a little different than the King James Version that you might have on the screen. Uh, It says in verse 1, If I say I won't mention him, this is Jeremiah 20 and 9, if I say I won't mention him or speak any longer in his name, Say that I'm going to stop. His message becomes a fire burning in my heart, shut up in my bones. 
I become tired of holding it in, and I cannot prevail. What Jeremiah is saying, when I receive this burden, even if I wanted to stop, the fire would be burning in my heart, shut up in my bones, and I could not prevail from not performing God's call on my life. That is a burden. When I look at the book of Jeremiah, and this is sort of just going to be the teaching tonight, this particular book combines a number of things. It combines history, talks about the kingdom of Judah. It contains biography. There's a lot about Jeremiah in this book, but it also contains prophecy. So this book contains all three, history, biography, and prophecy. The message of this book is simple. It portrays a nation in crisis and introduces everyone that reads it to an extraordinary person whom the Lord has called to prophesy in trying circumstances in the final days of Judah's existence before captivity. That person is Jeremiah. He's a Judean, he's from Judah, we call him a Judean prophet, whose message or his ministry spans four decades. A decade being how many years? When I was reading this, I said, let's see, a decade, decade, decade. I had to go back and ask Alexa, what is a decade? It's 10 years, 40 years. That's how long his ministry goes, 40 years. Now, Jeremiah um, appears to have received his burden or his call into ministry in the 13th year of a king that we all recognize as Josiah. That was in the year roughly about 627 B.C., 621 B.C. Now, I want, if you're not familiar with history, there were two nations at this time. they, They were split when Solomon's son Rehoboam made a bad decision and the kingdom was split between Judah and Israel. Now, Israel, the northern kingdom, remember we're talking 627 B.C., fell into Assyrian captivity in 721. That nation was carried away. So this is roughly 100 years, if my math is right, from the time of Israel's captivity to Assyria, that God puts a burden on his heart to start prophesying to the southern kingdom, which was Judah, about the same thing happening to them. It's not that the nations were not familiar with what had happened in Israel. It's just that over a hundred years, they became complacent. Year after year went by, nothing happened to Judah. They became involved in all sorts of apostasy. Let's let's look, you know, the Bible is so organized. The five divisions even of the Old Testament, the four divisions of the New Testament. Well, the book of Jeremiah is very organized too. Because when I look at Jeremiah, for instance, chapter 1 to chapter 5, deals with prophecies against Judah and Jerusalem, solely based on prophecies against the southern kingdom. Now, when you get from chapter 26 to verse chapter 45, now we deal with narratives about Jeremiah, situations that are going on in him and around him. Then in chapter 46 to chapter 51, Now we're dealing with prophecies against foreign nations outside of Israel. And the end of the book, chapter 52, is just an historical appendix. So the book is very well organized. It deals with certain topics in a specific order. Now, the prophecies in the first part of the book that we just talked about really start to come from Jeremiah himself. He's writing it in the first person. It isn't a scribe writing it. It's always in the first person. Now, the second part of the book of Jeremiah 
is mostly prose, and it speaks of Jeremiah in the third person. In other words, Jeremiah is not pinning the words. Uh, someone else is. Now, there is a scribe that we realize uh, is mentioned in chapter 36. He's actually mentioned, his name is Baruch, B-A-R-U-C-H, and it is believed that he's the one that wrote the second half of the book of Jeremiah at Jeremiah's dictation. In other words, like Paul dictated his letters, some of his letters, uh, Jeremiah had dictated the Baruch, the last portion of his book. And I, Now, are you inquisitive? You ever, you ever wonder, well, why did he write the first and he didn't finish the last? When you start to see the, the treatment that Jeremiah received carrying his burden, you'll understand there might have been physical things that had actually changed him. Sometimes carrying a burden that God gives you and a call often causes things to change in your life. The burden might even affect your health. We don't know, so we can only assume why he had Baruch write the last half of the book. One of the unusual features of the book of, of Jeremiah is the confessions that Jeremiah makes about himself. The expressions of what is going on in his life that he shares with his readers. There's a individual, individual laments that he, he shares with those that he knows will someday read the prophecies of this book. His message was not a popular message. He wasn't a TV evangelist or a prosperity evangelist. He was given a specific message of judgment, chastisement, anger from God. It wasn't readily received. There were no large offerings. No one wanted to sponsor him. Matter of fact, it seemed to Jeremiah that he was mostly alone in his message. Or was he? Jeremiah is a hero of the faith because he never wavered and amidst the struggle and the pain of all that was going on, he never faltered or gave up. Now remember, this, this burden, this struggle of preaching wasn't for a year or 10 years or 20 years. This went on for 40 years. At various times in his ministry, he had the lovely task of challenging religious hypocrisy. His own people, religious hypocrisy. He had to challenge economic dishonesty. That wasn't popular to those that were stealing. And then he actually had to prophesy against the oppressive practices of, their, of Judah's own leaders and those also who followed him. So I guess everyone was somewhat or somehow affected by his ministry. But Jeremiah was the watchman on the wall. He's the one that God assigned the task to bring attention to the hard truths that everyone else was ignoring. In this generation... In our generation, in 2000, 2020, God needs people to take a burden that is not necessarily popular, but must be delivered before judgment comes from above. There is a judgment held in store for our world that is going to be unlike any other judgment, much worse than Babylonian captivity, much worse than Assyrian captivity. It's going to be a judgment that's going to affect two-thirds of the world's population in a matter of seven to ten years. It's going to result in global annihilation. Do you know that the devil knows this? He reads the Bible. He probably can quote it better than a lot of Christians can. He knows that this 
earth is held in store of fire? But you know what he says? Guess what, guys? That's what we call global warming. And it's your fault. Indirectly, he's right. Global warming is man's fault. The annihilation of the earth is because, in the end, when it's purged by fire, is because of man's unrepentant sin. When I look at Jeremiah, the 22nd chapter, verse 6 through 8, it says, Thus says the Lord concerning the house of the king of Judah, I will make you a desert, an uninhabited city. I will prepare destroyers against you, and many nations will pass by this city, and all of them will say one to another, why has the Lord dealt in this way with that great city? This is Jerusalem. And they will answer, because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord their God. The wages of sin is death. In other words, if we look at it simply the way the King James has portrayed it, that's your salary. The wages of your actions, of your sinful actions, is paid with the commodity of death. But God has provided a gift of God to those who change through repentance of eternal life. Now, the nice thing about, well, I guess I can't say it's just nice about our generation. Jeremiah told them, if you'll repent and turn back to God, it's possible that God will turn from his way. But God knew that their heart was hard and they would not repent. I think that the one thing that has caused the nation of the USA to survive as long as it has is the covenant that it made with God in the beginning or its establishment. But as that covenant is defrayed and the economic and the lead, economic evil and the leadership, deceitfulness, and the false prophets prevail, we have changed our course as a nation in the same direction of Judah. Now, as Judah, what would, what would have Judah done without a Jeremiah? He was the one that was warning them. I remember, I think, I don't know who taught this Bible study, but I was a new Christian, and it was... It was the first Bible study I was in. And I think it was on a Bible study chart. It was on a, the old Bible study chart where there was a road and it was straight and flat, but it was going to a cliff. And at the cliff, people were falling down into a pit. I got the right one? Well, I remember the Bible study teacher saying, God has established preachers and teachers, evangelists and prophets and apostles to warn the people that the road is coming to an end and judgment is about to fall upon the face of the earth. And that's the burden, not only of the church, it's the burden for the people. You know what they called Jeremiah? You know, if he was alive today, you know what they would call him? They'd call him a pessimist. But I don't call him a pessimist. I call him a realist. You ever hear someone say, oh, that church just preaches doom and gloom? They're pessimist. It all depends on whether you're willing to change or not. I'm a, pe I'm a realist that believes in optimism. My realism says if you repent and turn from your wicked ways, God will hear from heaven and heal your land. There's a pessimism in there if you don't want to change your ways. But God has put a promise amidst the reality of the statement that says, if you will change, I will heal your land and I will break the curse of your sin. Now, I, I hear that first and I think about when God cursed the land. Do you remember where he cursed it at? Yeah, back in Genesis, the third chapter, because man sinned, and cursed was the ground. 
And God says, if we as people will turn from our wicked way, he will destroy the curse. But it's not dependent on God. God has given us the promises and his promises are true and yea and amen. It's all dependent upon the fivefold ministry to deliver the message and for those that hear the message to repent of their sin. But I do not feel the message is effective unless it's powered by a burden. It all depends on how you say something. Your children knew when they needed to act. You might have told them to put the cookies back in the jar five times. But the fifth time, when they raised their voice and they said, you put the cookie back right now or I'll... They knew that you had a burden for what you were saying. And your burden would be born in the fact that they would receive punishment. If I don't have a burden in the message I'm delivering, but those people that hear it will be like the, my, the child that does not respond to the apparent that just repeats something. If there is ever a day where the fire of God needs to fall again, it's in this generation. That fire fell at Pentecost and they were moved. They act like drunken men. That's the fire that fuels the burden that causes people to respond to the message. Without a burden, God's, this world will perish. You know, Jeremiah just simply wouldn't quit. This seemed like I know over 40 years, it seemed like an impossible assignment. This was just too big. Let me ask you a question. Let's do it in generally. How many of us would have walked away from such a situation? The slurs, the name calling, the imprisonment. I don't see where every had a convert. I know there were a couple other prophets that came forth from Judah at the time of the captivity in Babylon, but really wasn't an effective ministry. In other words, in our ministry, in the message that God has delivered to us, is there an option or is there a clause presented that if there are no converts, you can stop delivering the message? There's no, there's no witness to that in the Bible that I'm aware of. The Bible says, preach the word. Be instant in season, and what? Out of season. Nothing grows out of season. In other words, if nothing is happening in your life, just keep on presenting the burden. Because there will be a time when the season will be ripe and people will respond to the truth. He had what I would call tenacious faith. He was carrying out God's instructions in the face of unrelenting opposition and harsh criticism. That's where you find out what you're made of. Anybody can come to church and be a Christian. But why don't you walk into the world where Christianity isn't accepted and blasphemed? Is it easy to be a Christian amidst the sin and the wickedness of the world? Does that mean that I stop presenting my burden because of the opposition? That wouldn't be Jeremiah's opinion. He never flinched. This man never flinched, and I want you to hear this, in his confidence that God had placed him where he was. See, burdens present confidence. 
He never flinched in knowing that God had placed him where he was and no matter what the results of his message were, he had confidence in God that he was in his will. I was daydreaming today and I was driving down 59 uh, back to Eagle. And I had a guy, you know, one of those crazy drivers. I was only doing the speed limit and I know I upset him. And he passed me and he was upset. And I got, you know, I have a terrible imagination. No, I have a good imagination. Sometimes it's terribly wandering all over the place. And I, I imagine me going after him. I imagine me pulling him over and talking to him about his attitude. But then I realized I had fear. Now, I, I want you to understand, I realized that it probably wouldn't be a good idea because the guy was a lot younger, probably a lot stronger than me. And I said, Lord, 30 years ago, I wouldn't be afraid to do that. But see, now I'm, I know my limitations. I said, my fear is coming from my limitations. I can't even run away. My legs won't even carry me away. And God, I felt put this thought in my mind for the night. Your fear is based upon your own ability. Fear comes when people trust their own ability and they do not trust my strength. God never gave you the spirit of fear because his faith, if faith in God provides insurmountable strength. Your fear is based on what you can do. Can I wander away from this for a second? I had breakfast with Brother Schumacher this last week, and I had a wonderful time. I, hadn't, I haven't seen and talked to him like that for a while. We had breakfast together. And he was talking about something that happened in his church service. I can't remember how long ago it was. It could be short, but he said uh, while he was preaching one night, one of the men in his church saw an angel standing I'm facing the pulpit there. He was standing over in the left corner. All right. Nobody else saw the angel. But the man was so impressed because he stood there for so long that after the service was over, he got up and took his phone out and he went over to the place where the angel had been standing and he took a picture. To his surprise, even though he hadn't seen it when he took the picture, there was the angel in the picture. So Brother Schumacher says, Brother Kiley, I want to show you the picture. And he got his phone out because he must have transferred the picture over to him. And sure enough, in the picture, beside his altar, is a, an, an image of a man standing that you can see through. Now, why do I say that? I want to let you know that even though you enter into areas of opposition, that God has provided strength to you, not only through his Holy Spirit and through his name, but he has put angelic hosts around you to watch over you and to guide you so that you're never alone. But see, in our humanity and in the rapid succession of our life, we forget about the miraculous parts of God's existence that prevail in our personal lives. I think Jeremiah realized that, and he did not waver. He did not flinch. I think he had a piece of paper. Okay, humor me, all right, because that's the way I am. I believe if you would have searched his robe that you, and you would have pulled out a piece of paper that was folded in half. This is something that I would do. So I'm going to say that he did it too. And it would be a promise that he carried with him. And this promise is recorded in Jeremiah, the first chapter, 
verse 17 to 19. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. And I believe that Jeremiah, no doubt, took that promise out when he was overwhelmed with persecution and imprisonment and confrontation. And he would rehearse the promises of God in his mind. That's why the Bible says to us to gather ourselves together all the more as we see the day approaching. We need to have anointed preaching reminding of us of the promises that God has given to us so that we can face the resistance that we're coming up about against. That's why we've got to have our Bible. Have you ever said, I just need to have someone say it to me? Would you just tell it to me again? I, I remember, I, and I think the guys will relate to this, um, women too, but I guess I relate to a guy more than, than this aspect of it. I remember the first time my wife said, I love you, before you're married. <laughs> Do you remember that first time that person said, I love you? Wow, that's cool. 20 minutes later, could you say that again? Could you say it again? I need to hear that. Do you, did you just tell your spouse one time that you loved her? No, she needs to hear it all the time. I need to come to church and I need to hear it all the time. I, know, I can say it to myself, God loves you, Steve. God loves you, Steve. But sometimes I need someone to come to me and grab me by my hands and look me in the eye and say, God loves you, Steve. I was going through a trial and uh, I was in the hospital. It was, I had had a heart attack. That was probably six years ago and I was at Economic Memorial and you guys might have remembered they had said that I'd had a heart attack. Not a major heart attack but nonetheless something to be concerned about. And I remember how protective the nurses were of me. They all, most all the nurses knew, uh, knew me at Oconomowoc even though I hadn't, wasn't there quite as often as I once was. But the one nurse that was caring for me wouldn't let anybody come into my room because they'd say, go away, he's resting. <laughs> she was a stout one too. You weren't going to get by her. But one of the chaplain, chaplains snuck in there, got in there, and he said, Steve, I have to tell you something. You know, I was... I was actually giving him a hard time, and he actually corrected me. This is how stern he was about it. He was a new chaplain, and I said, all right, I'll be the supervisor, do your chaplain routine, and I'll judge you, and I'll grade you on how good you are. Just teasing him. And he said, Steve, serious now. I'm serious. God wants me to tell you something. And so I put my humor aside, and I said, what is it that that you have to say to me. What is it? He says, I feel that I have to tell you this. And I'll never forget the words. God said to tell you that he's proud of you. I started to cry. Instantly. Because sometimes I can, I can imagine maybe he's proud of me. But sometimes I need to hear someone relate the message. It's nice to get a letter stating that he's happy with you. Your children, and I probably am not the one to preach about this because I'm probably not good at it at all, need to hear us say that we're proud of them. They need to hear the words. 
I need to come to church. I need to have a friend. I need to have a brother or sister come to me and tell me what I already know. It's an affirmation. All right, let's get back to our message. Um, In 605, let's go back and look at the dates again. Nebuchadnezzar uh, of Babylon, he was from Babylon, attacked Jerusalem. And in this first uh, captivity of Judah, he carried off 10,000 of the most able Jews. He took the cream of the crop. He wanted to take the best that he could. So in the first captivity in 606, he took 10,000 Jews. Now you'll know two of these Jews because he ended up writing a book. Ezekiel and Daniel. So now Jeremiah's role is expanded. Now he's bringing the word of God to the Jews that are in exile. He's told them that this is going to happen. Now his ministry is a jail ministry. He's ministering to these people in exile. That's chapter 29. Now Jeremiah warns these exiles that they're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. Now he's said that they're going to be in captivity and now he's telling them how long they're going to be in captivity. They're going to be in 70, they're 70 years. Now the religious leaders that are there are trying to convince the people that nothing will ever happen to the city of Jerusalem, will never be destroyed and that God is going to bring them out of captivity sooner than 70 years. That's pie-in-the-sky preaching. When God says something in his word, that's the way it's going to be. There's others that will try to appease a person by telling them what they want to hear. But Jeremiah tried to fight against those false leaders, and he told them to settle down, to build houses, plant gardens, Marry off your children and stop listening to false prophets. In the last day, the Bible says there are going to be many prophets speaking smooth things. And it would be nice to to speak smooth things. But I need to preach the word that was delivered to me. I do not have the authority to change the word. So, meanwhile, back in in Judah, those remaining left in in Jerusalem in that area, you would think they would repent, wouldn't you? They saw what Nebuchadnezzar did in the first round of captivity. Wouldn't that make you think that Jeremiah was right? But these people had hardened hearts. They had ears to hear, but they would not hear. They had eyes to see, but they would not see. Even after the prophecies of Jeremiah were filled, they still would not repent. Now, was it because Jeremiah was a poor preacher? No, it's all in the condition of a person's heart. And if a, if a Christian or a man of God is going to judge the word by his response, he's a foolish individual. He needs to preach the word and the, the ground that is able to receive the word will bring forth fruit. But your job, our job as saints is to preach the word no matter what. The seed will fall on stony ground. It'll fall on the wayside, but some of it's going to fall on good soil. So don't be discouraged. I remember many times in my in mission that my first church in, well, my first church was Virginia, but my second was in Two Rivers. How discouraged I get at times. And sometimes we would, we would fill our storefront and we filled our basement and we'd have great services, but there would be sometimes when it would, might be just about eight or nine of us that were there. 
And I'd say, God, what is wrong with me? What is, what is it that's in my ministry that's so bad? And God says, you just keep preaching the word. And then all of a sudden, a family or two would come in and I'd start to rejoice and I'd get mad at myself because I'd had those thoughts. Now in 586 BC, the Babylonians returned. And they sacked Jerusalem this time. And he pulled down the walls of Jerusalem and they destroyed uh, the temple. Stone by stone they tore it down and carried off the remaining able-bodied people as captives. Now notice I said able-bodied people. There were still people left in Jerusalem after the second captivity. There were still some of the remnant of Judah left behind. Now you would think that after the second assault of Babylon and the destruction of Jerusalem, that now the people would respond to the message that Jeremiah was preaching. Surely they would, they would hear the word of God and they would repent. Oh, no, 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 no. Instead of repenting, they went down to Egypt. They made an alliance with Egypt to come up and fight against Babylon. Isn't it amazing how we always try to find another way to help ourselves before we go back to God? Wouldn't it have been easier to have just repented and confessed their sins and started to do what was right and have God fight for them, but man in his wickedness always finds at times a route to bypass God's will for their life? The new government, um, led by Jedediah, or Jedalia, and Jeremiah tried to encourage them, these remnants in Judah and Jerusalem area, to once again call upon God. No success. No success in the first captivity, for the first captivity. No success after the second captivity. No success after uh, Egypt because they made an alliance with Egypt and then it all fell apart. And when Jeremiah was taken down to Egypt, he died there. He died in Egypt. How many converts? How many revivals? But would you say he was a success? Anyone who performs the will of God and performs his commission is a success. I guess people are pretty short-sighted and they'd rather believe in a lie than believe in the truth. I think I need to remind myself over and over again, because I'm flesh and blood just like you are, that the work of God that I'm involved in is serious business. This is serious business. And failing to follow God's word in the work that he's given me to do will result in serious damage, not only to myself, but to those that God has given me influence over. Did you catch that? God has given me an oikos to work with just like he's given you an oikos to work with. You can reach people that I can't. But that also puts responsibility on your shoulder because if I can't reach him, that must be your field to work in. Pride in leadership leads to judgment in the ranks of God's people. I, and I, I say that because Brother Rob on, on Sunday preached a great message. And um, he said a couple things that I, I didn't necessarily feel the same about. It was the truth. I'm not saying it wasn't the truth, but I, I might have had a different viewpoint about this individual. Uh, I look, he, we talked about David. And I don't know what it is about David Yes, I do. I'll tell you what it is about David that bothers me. I, we, we talked about 
the military census written in 1 Chronicles 21. This is a man after God's own heart. God chose David specifically. Samuel anointed him with the oil of, 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 that provided that, that inspiration or effect of God on his life. And David had, had some good campaigns. He did some good things. But some of the things that he did were just terrible. I can say this, that if David was alive today, there's no way in the world that we would even let him be a minister in the United Pentecostal Church. He would not even be allowed to get a license. And yet, God built his throne upon the throne of David. So there's something here about David that we have to find that's, that has to reflect in our life. Let me show you this one story, and I'm, I'm, I am watching the clock. Uh, Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. So David, now I want you to meet this guy because I really like this guy. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, go and count Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring a report to me so I can know their number. Now, the one thing that I notice here in the scripture is that Satan, or David, did not realize that Satan was inspiring him to do this act. He didn't recognize the spirit that was addressing him. But God puts other people around men of God for this reason, to help them discern when they're not discerning correctly. Joab was that man. Joab replied, may the Lord multiply the number of his people a hundred times over, my Lord, the king. Aren't they all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord want to do this? I want to, brother, if I'm going to pastor, I want a guy like this around me. I want to be challenged when I'm doing the wrong thing. Why does the Lord want to, why, does, why do you want to do this, David? Why, why should he bring guilt on Israel? He's telling him of impending judgment if he does this because God has for, forbidden him to do it. Yet the king's order prevailed over Joab. So Joab left and traveled throughout Israel and then returned to Jerusalem. So Joab obeyed him. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel and 70,000 Israelite men died. Now, if you've ever studied the word, oftentimes in scripture, it only mentions males, you know, the male account. This could have been more than 70,000. This was just the, the, the men that died. There were probably women and children that died. So this might not be the total amount of death. Then God sent an angel to Jerusalem and to destroy it. But when the angel was about to destroy the city, the Lord looked, relented concerning the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, enough, withdraw your hand now. God stopped in his own mercy from totally destroying Jerusalem. Now, I, I think in this story, Job is more of a hero to me than David was. I... I somehow resent David's faults and self-focus. He was a poor father. In the rape of Tamar, his daughter, he did nothing to discipline his son who had lied to him and then raped his own sister. He was a, at times a very poor leader, concerned about his own power over the power of God as we see above. He was vengeful that at his death he made Solomon promise that he would slay Joab because he could not get over the fact that he had disobeyed David um, in the death of Abner. Do you know who Joab was? I bet you I can tell you something that you don't even know. I, I like it when I can do that because I don't think there's a person in this room that knows who Joab is. Oh, come on, you ruined it for me. <laughs> you get a prize for that. I didn't even realize it till just recently. Joab was the son of Zeruiah, who was the sister of King David. 
David made his nephew the captain of his own army. And you can find that in 2 Samuel, the 8th chapter, verse 16. So Joab was the nephew of David. He orders his own family to be destroyed. And I could go on to talk about how he interceded on the behalf of Absalom to protect David from his enemies. But do you know that Joab, when he was killed, do you know where he was? Solomon had sent a messenger to take Joab's life. Do you know where Joab went for mercy to? You know, I know, Brother Rob, you know right away. He went to the house of God. He was slain in the house of God by the servant of Solomon. So, I know there are good characteristics of David, but what is it that God admires about this man who's committed murder and adultery? He's got unforgiveness and bad judgment. What is it that is so special about this guy that that God recognizes him? You know what I think it is? His ability to repent over his actions. David had the ability to repent. Do you know what inhibits us from repentance? The one nature that you have that will separate you from the will of God? It's your pride. And we all have them somewhere along the line, but I'm not going to tell anybody because I don't want to say so. Come on, smile with me a little bit. It's all, we're, we're, we're getting to the good part. And you're saying, Brother Kylie, what is that? The promises of God. Ah. Back to Jeremiah. We're going to finish with Jeremiah. What was the root of Judah's problem? What had happened that they fell into apostasy so dramatically? What is it that happened to them? Well, the Bible tells me. I'm reading from Jeremiah 2 and 13. Again, this is the Holman Christian Standard Bible I'm reading from. For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. (laughs) Remember what Jesus said in John 7? If any man thirsts, let him come unto me. Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. What these people have done is they have tried to get uh, liquid refreshment from cisterns that they've made with their own hands and not from God. In other words, they get their strength from another source than the what God has provided for them. And when you're in your walk for God, if you're trying to walk this walk with the cistern that you've built... You're going to end up in apostasy just like Judah did. God's provided spiritual nourishment and strength through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Now I go to Jeremiah, the second chapter, verse 19. Notice what Jeremiah writes. Your own evil will discipline you. Your own apostasies will reprimand you. Think it over and see how evil and bitter it is for you to abandon the Lord your God and have no fear of me. This is the declaration of the Lord God of hosts. What did they lose in this portion of scripture? They lost their fear of God. What is the fear of God according to scripture? It's the beginning of wisdom. Then in Jeremiah, the second chapter, verse 28. But where are your gods you made for yourself? Let them rise up and save you. In your time of disaster, if they can, for your gods are as numerous as your cities, Judah. In other words, the Lord is saying you built, you built things that you thought could, could save you, 
But how, how are they going to withstand the judgments of God? See if those things that you have saved in your bank account or the talents that you have or the physical abilities that you possess, see if those things that you have in your life that you've developed can save you from my judgment. My strength is in the Lord. Our strength has to be in him. And then in verse 32 of the, of the same chapter, can a young woman forget her jewelry or a bride her wedding sash? Yet my people have forgotten me for countless days. I like the picture here. Would a woman forget her wedding dress on the day of her marriage? Of course, that's unheard of. Oh, I forgot my dress, honey. That's ridiculous. But he's saying the thing that is most precious to you, you have forgotten. And then in the second chapter again, I'm going to go back to verse 2 again. Go and announce directly to Jerusalem that this is what the Lord says. And I, this is the part of my message, if you don't know, that you need to really pay attention to because I think this is a message for the church tonight. Not only this message that I've spoken, but something directly given to all of us. I remember the loyalty of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. Do you realize the church is the first fruits of the Gentiles? Now notice what he talks about. Now, not being Jewish, we might miss this. They weren't allowed to take of the first fruits. Those belonged unto God. Now notice what he says. All who ate of it found themselves guilty. Anybody that touches the first fruits was guilty. We are the first fruits of God as Gentiles. We're precious and set aside unto God, just like the first fruits were to the Lord in the Old Testament. Anything that comes against the first fruits which belong to God will suffer penalty. Disaster came on them. This is the Lord's declaration. Hear the word of the Lord, house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they went so far from me? Following worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They stopped asking. Now notice, I want you to pay attention. They stopped asking, where is the Lord who brought us out of the land of Egypt? Who led us through the wilderness? through a land of deserts and ravines, through a land of drought and darkness, a land no one traveled through and where no one lived. I brought you to a fertile land to eat its fruit and bounty. But after you entered, you defiled my land. You made my inheritance detestable. The priest quits saying, where is the Lord? The experts in the law no longer knew me, and the rulers rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and followed useless idols. Therefore, I will bring a case against you again. This is the Lord's declaration. I will bring a case against your children's children. Now going to Jeremiah 3, verse 12. Go, there, go proclaim these words to the north and say, Return, unfaithful Israel. This is the Lord's declaration. I will not look on you with anger, for I am unfailing in my love. This is the Lord's declaration. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to strangers under every green tree and have not obeyed my voice. This is the Lord's declaration. Verse 14, return, you faithless children. This is the Lord's declaration, for I am your master, 
And I will take you one from a city and two from a family. And I will bring you to Zion. I will give you shepherds who are loyal to me. And, I, and they will shepherd you with knowledge and skill. When you multiply and increase on the land in those days, the Lord's declaration, no one will say any longer the ark of the Lord's covenant. It will never come to mind and no one will remember or miss it. It will never again be made. At that time, Jerusalem will be called Yahweh's throne and all the nations will be gathered to it to the name of Yahweh in Jerusalem. They will cease to follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah will join with the house of Israel and they will come together from the land of the north to the land I have given your ancestors to inherit. Did that happen? Is this prophecy fulfilled? What year? Yeah, I like testing you guys. The Bible talks about letting him who boast boast in the Lord. And then the last scripture I'm going to read tonight. Jeremiah 9, 24. But the one who boasts should boast about the, in this. If you're going to boast about something, this is what you can boast about. That he understands and knows me. And that I'm Yahweh, or God, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. You can see by the book of Jeremiah that we spent tonight, as we've read from the pages, that Jeremiah was direct. And you can almost feel as we read some of these prophecies and promises, the same power that must have been present when Jeremiah said these same words. When I, was, when I was younger, when I first came into the Lord in 1972, I was saved uh, at Parkway Apostolic Church. That was in the heyday of Brother Frank Tamil. He was a spitfire. And when you would sit in his services you would bring your work shoes, the steel-toed ones, because he was a fire and brimstone preacher. He was oftentimes too direct for me, but he was direct. But it placed inside of me a respect and fear for God that I might not have had if someone wouldn't have been so direct with the word of God. I want, I want to stand before God and I pray, if it was my prayer, that when God gives me something to say or if he gives you something to say and directs you to say it, that you say it directly as he's commanded you to say it without fear, without favor, because we are the watchmen on the wall tonight for this generation. We are the Jeremiahs and we may, they may not receive our word, but that doesn't give us a reason to withdraw from sharing it with them. And remember, when you have fear, your fear is based on your own lack of ability. And it's not about your ability. If it was, we'd be, of all men, most miserable. It's based on his ability. He's the one that has power to save He's the one that has power to deliver. And if you'll trust in him and keep that verse that Jeremiah kept in his, palm, his pocket, the promises of God, and when you feel overwhelmed and you're sitting in prison and you're rejected, take out the promises of God and read it again because they will not fail. And some might consider Jeremiah a failure. None of it turned out. Judah went into captivity several times and then was defeated by Babylon while they were made an alliance with Egypt. But again, remember, no man's a failure that does what God has told him to do. And that's all I got to say. <sighs> Isn't Jeremiah exciting? Maybe, I hope that, if I had one prayer tonight, I pray when you come to that book, in your Bible reading, 
you stop and take notice and say, oh, maybe there is something in there that I can find. Because it's there. I tell people it's like ragu. You know what ragu sauce is? And it's what it's famous for? You know what's in it? It's in there. Everything that you need is in ragu sauce to make a good Italian meal. Everything you need in the church is in here. It's in here. But the one thing that will destroy all of us is when we try to survive by making wells or cisterns that God has not told us to develop. And we, start, we stop drinking from the water of life because that will always lead to apostasy. Hmm. Let's stand together. I think the, before I close, I just have this thought. It's kind of funny. I don't have a song tonight. Usually I get a song after every message, but not tonight. But I do feel led to do something. Do you realize who you need to pray for? You need to pray for those that have received the burden of the message. If you don't have a burden yourself, pray for those that have a burden. And while you're there, pray for yourself to receive a burden because a person with a burden isn't easily destroyed by apostasy. Lord Jesus, tonight I, I just close with this, Lord, that you would have your hand upon your people. Lead us in the old ways, Lord. Help us to drink from a fountain that doesn't run dry. Restore us, O Lord. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, for the works of our hands and our minds and our mouths, Lord. Make our feet to walk upon a straight path. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.